You're listening to the Black Belt Podcast and this is episode two. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to thank everyone who's liked, shared and subscribed or reviewed episode one. The support is greatly appreciated. Uh, of course, if you enjoyed episode one and you haven't done any of those things, it'd be great if you could do so as that'll help the podcast grow. So moving on to today's guest, here with me today is Mr. Adrian Byrne. How are you hey. doing, Jamie? Those things. Adrian is the head coach at Challenge Taekwondo Club and has been my coach for over 16 years. Adrian has worn many hats within the Irish Taekwondo community, from being a competitor to a club coach to national team coach to ITA board of director to being a coach education officer with Sporting Ireland. Adrian was also part of a team that put together a successful bid and then a very successful world championships here in Ireland in 2017. So today we're going to talk about Adrian's experience as a competitor, club coach, national team coach, along with some other bits and pieces of his, of his experiences throughout the years. So let's get into it. What's up, Adrian? How are we doing, Jamie? Good morning. Not too bad. Thanks, Miriam, for doing this. Always a pleasure. Co- coming on. So um, I want to take it right back at the start, and because uh, I think everybody, like I said to you before, I think everybody has a story on why they got into martial arts and then why specific, specifically Taekwondo. So uh, if you want to take us back, I'm going to start there. Yeah, sure. So my first night training in Taekwondo, and I only know this because my original instructor, Tim Ford, his uh, now master Tim Ford, his record keeping was superb. So uh, I started on the 11th of February, 1989. And uh, uh, an unusual time because most people start their training in September. So uh, they, I was t- just coming up on 10 years of age. I turned 10 the, the following March. I've been watching a lot of the, you know, the best of the best movies, all of the classic 60s, 70s, 80s stuff from Bruce Lee, the No Retreat, No Surrender, uh, you know, all of those, uh, you killed yeah. my brother, now I'm going to take my revenge yeah. kind of movies. Enter and, the Dragon. Uh, Enter the Dragon. Uh, you know, there were so many classics and they were kind of good Friday evening watching if I was, you know, sitting on my own in the living room. And uh, my dad kind of said to me at some stage, you know, this lad working with me who's actually teaching some of that stuff, would you fancy giving it a go? And I thought, yeah, why not? And uh, I think his motivation was probably the fact that when I was younger, there was uh, uh, was quite a lot of being pushed and shoved about in school. I was a very, very small kid. And uh, uh, especially when we moved from out in the country and into the, the, it's it's still really a small town is Shannon, but at the the time it seemed like a big town. And anyone coming from out of the town seemed like they were just strange and foreign at the time. And I got, you know, a good bit of abuse and I was very, very quick to cry or quick to lose my temper. Got myself into fights I couldn't win and uh, maybe it was a great idea to uh, to get started in something that might let me get some control and all of that. Yeah, I think, yeah, the movies definitely, I think, is a big part, I think, though, for why most people nearly start. Like, so I was saying to, on the last episode was like, I started from watching Power Rangers and then got competitive watching The Karate Kid because like that big trophy he wins at the end. That's it. You, I wanted one of them, so... Power yeah. Rangers, that's the generational shift there. It was it was Bruce Lee and uh, Tommy Lee and these kind of people yeah. when I was young and it became the the Power Rangers, the Teenage Mutant and Turtles. Even, and even more Jackie Chan then as well. Kind of and came. Jackie Chan. Yeah, he kind of came more after that. So yeah, it's, uh, I think that one as well, trying to keep out of fights is always a big one where people end up starting. Yeah, yes. and particularly because I was, I was probably always the one starting the fight because I was reacting to the verbal stuff. And as far as my, you know, the, the te- teachers are obviously going back to the parents and saying, you know, well, he's always getting himself in trouble. He's, you know, he's doing these things. And it was never the whole, the focus was never on what was being said to me or what was rising me. It was, you know, the focus was on, well, 
I threw the first shot and usually I was the one finishing up on the ground with some fella sitting on top of me and slapping me. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I wasn't learning my lesson from that. So, um, you know, years later, you know, uh, I think the the biggest thing was was more around learning not how to beat the guys up. That time never really came. It was more learning that I actually didn't have to react to any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I had better things to be doing. Yeah, that's big. Like, all the time people... You very rarely see anybody in martial arts or anybody like that, boxers or anything, like getting to fights. No. Do you know, it's because like, no. no, we don't need to. We do enough of that in training to yeah. hit each other and getting slapped. So yeah. it's like, outside of that, no, I don't really need to worry about that. I think people so. getting into fights have that imagination that this is all going to work out perfectly for me. This is going to go exactly like it does in my head. And once you've trained for a little while, you realise that even when you think it's all going perfectly, you're still getting hurt. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. You don't, so. come, you don't come out without taking a shot. No, definitely not. And so, Diana, how long were you training before you got the black belt? So I got my black belt in 1993 under Grandmaster Heel Show. Um, and that was, uh, that was a big event. I was uh, sent up on the train by my parents. So the grading was on in Dublin. About 120 other people grading at the same day. Big grading. Big grading, all in the one day. And it was really old style in that you finished with, everybody made one long line and we all had to break something at the end. Uh, and the, the, the breaking horse was set up in front of the, the examiner's table. And everyone came up and you did your break. And whether it was true or not, the story was, if you didn't break, you didn't pass. So everyone was highly motivated. But you've got that anticipation of seeing, I don't know, maybe 60 or 70 people went before I did <laughs> in a long, long, long line. So the you, see a lot, you see a lot of people successful and then you see the odd one that bounces off of it. And, you know, that, that definitely felt the pressure at the time. And we didn't find out. So I graded in March, but we didn't find out until June. Uh, whether we were successful Easy. or not. So he went home with his results back to California and uh, he sent the results in the post then sometime later. So Tim Ford called to my door sometime, I think in June, perhaps even July to tell me the good news and the bad news. So we really trained and prepared as a team for that. And most of us had been successful. But at the time, uh, Kevin Kinsler, who's the treasurer now of the Irish Taekwondo Association, he wasn't successful in that grading. It was the following year when he passed. Uh, and got his black belt, but it was, uh, uh, you know, it was it was really a, a joyous occasion in getting the black belt and achieving it. Yeah. But really, also felt a blow that Kevin hadn't gotten it because he'd prepared just as hard as the rest of us. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was just See. an unfortunate thing that he didn't get it at the time. Yes, yeah, that was rough. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and we'd be worrying about waiting an hour at all gradings. These That's days. it. Keep, yeah. Keeping people waiting for an hour and the you're stress waiting, of waiting over, an hour over three months or whatever. You, f- you almost forgot you did it by the time you you, you got the black belt. Yeah. And, and then, of course, as well, it, it was a different tradition at time because you got your black belt and that was wonderful and it was embroidered. Uh, but then you had to sit down, you had to go to the, the shop and buy uh, a roll of black uh, ribbon and, <laughs> you know, sit down with a needle and thread and stitch oh, all the stuff God. onto the suit. So, yeah, it was a different era. Oh, I uh, couldn't buy it. No, I couldn't, couldn't buy it. <laughs> uh, then you ended up somehow taking over Shannon Taekwondo Club then from starting to training to taken on to be head instructor. Yeah, so that all happened by accident, which is the, the, the fun part of that one. So what had happened was in about 1995, uh, my instructor moved to Cork. He got married and moved to Cork and the club was handed over to Kevin Surahan. Uh, Kevin ran the club from 95 through to about 98. Um, and then he too decided that he was going to go, but a little further afield, he decided to move to Australia. Uh, and that was more work related, I think, but he, uh, we had a summer grading and so we got to whatever date it was in June or July and the, uh, summer grading happened and he announced at the end of it then that he was emigrating, uh, you know, in about two weeks. And so the, uh, Master Ford was still the examiner at the time and he kind of said, well, geez, lads, is there anyone who's going to take this on? 
and we all looked at each other as you do in those kind of circumstances. <laughs> and I think we were all both, you know, uh, no, nobody was expecting that. Everybody was kind of, uh, kind of shocked. And so I kind of said, well, I can. Uh, I'll certainly be willing to try. And then one or two other people said, well, if you do that, I'll help. Um, not to name names, but the help never turned up. And so <laughs> on the, you know, the start of September, uh, I, I, I sent out my messages to all 12 of the members of the club at the time. And we got four of them to make their way back on the first night. The first Monday, I think we just did a senior class. And on the second night, then we invited in the new beginners. And thankfully, there was about uh, 14 or 15 new beginners to go with the five or six other members that were in the, the beginner class at the end of the year. Yeah. And we ra- gradually started to regrow um, in the most amateur and, you know, guess your way through it and copy what you've seen before, way that you could possibly imagine. Um, this is before the internet. This is before uh, coaching courses. This is before international instructors courses, as far as I was concerned. And it was really just a case of, well, if you have a black belt, you can do the job. Yeah. And so here you are. And I really felt that this is the deep end. And uh, what age you around that time? So when I took it over, it was 1998. I was uh, 19 and I was in my, yeah. I just finished my first year in college, was heading into second year. It's young enough to be taken on. Young enough to be taken it on, yeah. And the, the biggest concern that everybody had at, the, at that time was that, oh, that hall is very expensive. You should move to a cheaper hall. That's £13.50 an hour. <laughs> and I look back uh, at that now. Did you get it for that now? Your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I wouldn't give for a hall that'd be £13.50 an hour now. Yeah. yeah. And um, were, had you started doing kids' classes then? Or was it all kind of more so closer that, to the adults? Because there was w- a time where your it kids was weren't kids. training. It was yeah. kids, but it was more the kind of eight, nine, ten years would have been the youngest. Yeah. And where the younger kids came from uh, was I changed over my degree. So in the middle of that first year of running the club, I dropped out of uh, industrial chemistry. I absolutely hated it. But I started coaching and the coaching was actually, you know, really digging into my imagination. And I, I, I was seeing a lot of, well, where could this go? And I changed into sport and exercise science for my primary degree. And uh, through that, I'd met uh, one of the lecturers, PJ Smith, and he focused on uh, motor skill development and acquisition of motor skills and all of that kind of thing. And really the focus was on skill acquisition, you know, at, from really rudimentary stages and developing it through with young people. And I thought, well, we don't do this. And this could be a class that I could do. And so I started offering classes for four, five, six-year-olds. And at the same time, Stephen Cooley was doing that in Dublin. So the two of us bounced an awful lot of ideas over and back across each other, where eventually we spoke with uh, Grandmaster Narditsi and Master Mark Hutton over in Scotland at, you know, at the opening of Master Hutton's centre. And that rounded out some more ideas that eventually became things like, you know, uh, our kind of kids stripes program uh the itf kids uh program and yeah. you know influence things like the tigers program the cubs program uh certainly not taking any credit for any of those but those were the discussions that happened before it's all based of those on existed. the same ideas and of course they all still, have to be we're all dealing with relevant the, same, and all. Yeah. the same person but those were hugely popular right away and we ended up with you know instantly full classes of 30 people and it did let us really build the club at the time uh, and it was quite a long time, it was four or five years beca- before I actually stopped teaching the youngest age groups. Yeah. And that had been, and you know this, but it had been entirely because Shannon's a very small town. And if you have an awful lot of success at that younger age group, you just have already trained everybody by the time they come to the older age groups. Yeah. And yeah. it's a big ask to have someone training 14 years before they turn into a senior. And that's fine if your only goal is, you know, making money out of people who are training in martial arts. 
but when our goal was definitely more around bringing people through to be long-term black belts and to compete at an international level, I needed them to start a little older. And so we moved the age group up a little bit towards the six. Yeah. yeah so that was our change. It's definitely holding on to people. And I suppose as well, if you're trying to build more of a club culture, not just we're going to run a taekwondo class there and sure if everybody, as long as they leave and I replace them with somebody else in the door just as quick. Yeah. Like it's different then when you're trying to keep them like that and build a culture of getting people to black belt, then get them onto the national team. Can you get them to be competitive? That's a different ballgame to where you want to keep them. Absolutely. And even though you can see huge positive change and huge <laughs> developmental work is being done with people at that stage, um, y- you know, you have to look at uh, the viability of the club long term and if the club doesn't have seniors it's very very hard for the club to be sustainable yeah. and so a priority for me in terms of keeping the club sustainable was that well I need to have seniors and the easiest way to do that is make sure that by the time they're turning senior they probably haven't been training for more than 10 years because when you look at the turnover in a club you know if we lose 25% of our members every year that means we have to add 25% or more each year in order just, to keep the club just viable to, just and to growing, maintain, like yeah. just to maintain so when we were looking at the amount of time it would take for a person to come through from age four or five through to adulthood, it's quite a challenge. Plus, we're not in a university town or city where, you know, four fifths of all of the people that we bring through to adulthood go off to university. They move to Dublin or Cork or Galway or somewhere else. And we don't see them again until either they finish their university studies and they come back to us or more likely we don't see them again. That's more than tends to happen. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But even... That tends to happen with people just going to UL, the University of Limerick. They kind of, you get immersed in that, in that college lifestyle and then yeah. you just try and just isn't the priority anymore. So 100%. Like that, and it's very hard to come back then. And no matter who you are, if you've been doing anything for 10 or 15 years and you encounter something new and fresh and exciting, then that's a huge draw. And it's very, very hard to go with the old tried, true, tested thing. And particularly if you're... You know, if you're not somebody who's in a very, very solid competitive position, if you're not coaching, if you don't have a role as a referee, if there's nothing that is binding you, tying you or holding you to that activity, that sport, that martial art, it's very, very tempting to see what what's to offer somewhere else. And I mean, you even look at that in terms of people who grew up in Ireland, they spend their first 18, 20, 22 years in Ireland. And the first thing they want to do when they finish college is, well, I'll go travel for a year and just see what else is out there. Yeah. And you can't blame them. It's a great idea. It's, you know, it's just widening the, uh, the the mind, exploring new horizons. And so we shouldn't really expect it to be any different in terms of your your sport or martial arts experiences. And so we're seeing that with, you know, if you take uh, your last guest there, Adam Shelley, where, you know, he's achieved an enormous amount within yeah. ITF Taekwondo, but along his journey, he explored kickboxing and WTF Taekwondo uh, yeah. and a little boxing. You need to keep it fresh. Like, yeah. uh, and for him, yeah, that's it. It allows you to explore other things. And in my professional life, that means... I spend almost every day exploring what other sports are doing to improve the quality of their coaches and the coaching, the experience that athletes have of being coached within the sport all with the exact same goals as us within Taekwondo. Yeah. And I think like Taekwondo, well, the ITA at Taekwondo is maybe ahead of a lot of martial arts in terms of like coach education and that, uh, but maybe not so much as with other sports. Yeah, in a wider scale. So definitely like looking at other sports and what they're doing with their coaches could be something that we really need to do and should be doing to see can we improve our coaches all the time. Yeah, that's 100% correct. I mean, we we were very fortunate in that when I started into the coach education side of things from the point of view of uh, my own training, we piggybacked off the work that had been done by people like Brendan Dowling and Roy Baker in the Martial Arts Commission uh, and many others. 
uh, and we did the level one that was offered at the time. It's a generic martial arts coaching course that was offered by IMAC at the time. Uh, and that gave us kind of a, a grounding. It gave us our first steps in, the, uh, you know, on this path. And then when I started work for Sport Ireland Coaching, um, it allowed us to develop our own introduction to coaching award for our younger members at Blue Belt and Higher. It allowed us to develop our own far more specific level one that covered all of the same learning outcomes, but yeah. really applied it to how it happens in ITF Taekwondo. And that was kind of the initial part of it. But what has really helped over the years from there is that I've been working with everyone from uh, gymnastics to boxing to horse sport and, uh, you know, a huge number of NGBs, seeing what they're doing both in Ireland and internationally and exploring what's working and what's not and learning from their experiences so that uh, we can borrow, you know, what other people have tried, found to be good. We can borrow resources from other people and it's been hugely beneficial in terms of allowing us to really enhance what we can offer in our coaching programs. Yeah. I think as well, the biggest thing as well is um, how do people on the course buy in? So I think you sometimes, my experience of being through the courses is like you'll nearly get out of it what you want to get out of it. It's like if oh, you're just yeah. doing the course for the sake of, oh, I need to have this course done to be a member of the ITA or whatever, you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. If you're looking at it, okay, can I pick something up here? The course then is hugely beneficial. And that forms the questions that you'll ask, the inputs that you'll give and how much of yourself you give to the course. I mean, from the point of view of someone who's leading the courses, um, what we often find is that people, like you say, they, they arrive and they're doing it to tick a box and they have a reserved attitude to the course. And that can come from a couple of things. Like people can be nervous. People can feel challenged in, you know, you know, particularly if someone's got a lot of experience and they know their stuff. They know that they've they've been coaching Taekwondo for, for a number of years. But they've never had that questioned. They've never had anyone critique that. They've never had to have that tested in the same way as you would your Taekwondo skills. So as a group, we're very used to the idea of stepping on the floor and having our skills evaluated, whether it's formally through a grading or a, a competition or informally just because we're on the floor with our peers yeah. and they form an opinion of us, our efforts, you know, it's human nature, we compare. But then you go on a course and it's not that that's being evaluated, it's your ability to deliver to... Uh, to identify errors and find the best way to progress or improve it for that individual, you know, to form connections with other human beings on the course and get yeah. the best out of them. And you have to be, you have to expose yourself. You have to leave yourself open for criticism and critique. And you hope that the people around you have enough, you know, common decency as human beings to deliver that critique in a way that's helpful and is not intended to demean or bring you down, but is intended to build you up and improve you as a coach. And it's that community of coaches that is the like the strongest takeaway from the uh, from that coach education process. So if people can realize that, you know what, we're in different places and we're, we're up against each other as competitors, uh, both for students or, you know, for placings in a competition or to yeah. get people onto a national team. That's one thing. But on the other hand, we all face the same struggles. We have the same issues with the same types of people. You know, we're struggling to get across the same syllabus or the same content. We want to bring people to the same level. And we won't all be equally successful at it, but we're all striving towards a lot of the same things. And because we're doing that, we have more in common than we have as differences. And it's looking to see how can we like drive some support from that feeling that, hey, there's a lot of other people that have something in common with me. And if I'm only willing to accept that or uh, state that I don't have all the answers here, yeah, I'm willing to take advice, guys. What have you got for me? And be equally willing to give the very best of what you have uh, by way of advice, then, you know, uh, then we can all grow. 
Um, and I think I'm actually going to quote Andreas Jenstad here, who's one of the Norwegian coaches, and he's specifically a uh, coach on the Norwegian national team for patterns and team pattern. And he's involved in, uh, he'll be delivering some sessions at the, the first international coaches conference in June. And he's, he kind of said, the, the more we share, the more we have. So that was the quote that he gave. And I thought, you know what, that really resonates with me. And yeah. that is the concept of the coach education. It's like, well, if you look at it as I'm going to keep my secret sauce to myself, then while well, you have your secret sauce, it really isn't that secret. Somebody else is doing it. You just haven't admitted that to yourself yet. But the second you start to share your secret sauce and everybody else is sharing their secret sauce, you learn all of the other ways of doing things that, you know, might actually help you, might be beneficial. So when we have, when we all have access to that, then it comes down to, well, the students are getting the best out of us and we can draw on, well, this was my thing that I did, but maybe there's something better out there for me, but I just yeah. never accessed it because nobody ever told me about it. Yeah. Well, I think even that is like, if every, even if everybody has all like the same information, same ideas and the same potentially principles, the skill then in coaching is how do you deliver it? Yes. You know, that's then the real skill. It doesn't matter. Like I could deliver completely different to you, to the next person, to the next person. And it might have varying success then depending on who's delivering it. So that's the real skill in coaching then I find. So what we always talk about when it comes to the coaching courses and we introduce this at the introductory level is we have like an upside down triangle. So we have the, the narrow point at the bottom and the broad part at the top. And at the top is knowledge and everyone can have the knowledge and you can go on a course, read yeah. a book, go on the internet. Knowledge is everywhere. The skills are the part that we really work on the courses. That's the next level down. Uh, and the skills part, it's transferable between knowledge bases. So mm. if you have good communication skills, organizational skills, etc., you can transfer that from, you know, knowledge base to knowledge base and make use of it. But those are skills that we can teach and practice on a on a course. And the part that is super important because it's kind of the base of the funnel, it's the filter that everything has to pass through is the personal qualities. Yeah. And so the exact same knowledge taught through the, the same skill process will feel completely different to one athlete as opposed to another because of the personal qualities of the coach that delivers it. And we've always seen that where we send our athletes to national team and they come back enthused about something that you've told them a hundred times before, but it came in different words or with a different, uh, you know, delivery style from somebody else. And because it was to someone else, because the environment was different, because that person connected with them in a different way, now they're willing to hear it yeah, and they improve. And you could take that personally and say, well, I've told you that so many times, but the reality is, yeah, you did but I didn't hear it from them or from them or I, you know, I, I quote Liam Morgan, uh, who is a, a guy that uh, he's a coach educator and works with me for uh, a good many years. And you would say that uh, you'll learn when your moment of learning has come. So yeah. you are not going to learn until you're ready to learn. Yeah. And the second you're ready to learn, then big the time. information can flow in. Yeah, big time. Um, so I want to take it back then as well to uh, what you were t uh, doing all that coaching in Shannon Taekwondo Club and all that. Uh, you were actually an active competitor as well. Yeah. Competing the whole way through that time. I was certainly trying. Um, so <laughs> That's the, all you can do. That's all you can do. So yeah, so what happened for me was um, I was competing as a kid very actively up until I was about 15. And when Kevin Surin <coughs> took over the club, he had a different coaching philosophy and a different coaching style. And his reason for practicing Taekwondo and martial art in general, because he also practiced Aikido, was very much more around self-development, uh, self-control. And, you know, it was his physical fitness training. And it was 
he had an interest in self-defense, but generally more in the kind of the esoteric philosoph- philosophical side of things. Yeah. And that was not me at 15. I can tell you that. But it meant that I didn't really hear of or go to competitions. And this was uh, the pre-internet era. It was even pre-having a, 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 it was certainly pre-mobile phones and it was pre-having a landline in my house at the time. <laughs> and so although I would have been good friends with the likes of uh, Stephen Ryan, who I'm still v- very good friends with, uh, and the Ennis Club, which is only 15 minutes in the road, mm. were traveling to competitions every two or three weeks. Um, I knew nothing of them. It just wasn't coming to me. So when I took over the club and I realized in, you know, 98 that there are competitions happening, there's stuff going on all of the time. There's coaches here who are bringing people abroad. I was like, well, okay, I, I let's let's try that. So I linked up with uh, Master Cooley, uh, Master Stephen Cooley up in River Valley. And... Uh, we started to meet every now and again, like just three or four times, you know, a year outside of events and seminars really, or pre-grading events or things like that. And just start to take on a few skills. And the, uh, the, I, I started competing in Ireland a little bit, uh, not with massive success at that stage. Um, and then there was a kind of a, a watershed moment where, uh, and for anyone who knows the personalities involved, this will, this will relate to you. But, uh, we were taking the club to a competition in Holland and uh, everyone was being registered. And I said, well, you know what? I'll, I'll bring these few people along and I'll, I'll go in myself and we'll enter the patterns. And so about a week before we were due to travel, uh, and that was basically because I, I felt like I haven't sparred that much competitively and I've never sparred yeah. abroad. I don't know if this is the big tournament that I want to step up in. And what happened was a week before we traveled, Got a phone call and uh, Stephen Cooley rang me and he said, uh, yeah, listen, buddy, we've uh, just one small thing there. Uh, yeah, there's no patterns in this tournament. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, right. So does that mean I'm not competing? He said, no, 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 no. You're entered in sparring. Right. Yeah. That's... Okay. So I suppose it's kind of important to say that at the time, like I was 20, 21, maybe 22. Um, and the, this is in the early 2000s. And what, uh, uh, it'd take me quite a while to build up. Like I said, I was quite a small kid. I would, I'm five foot 10 now. I've been five foot 10 since I was 13, but I didn't get above 54 kilos until I was 18 or 19 years of age. And by that stage, I was about 61, 62 kilos, um, on a, you know, on a good day. Um, so, uh, most of the time in Ireland, I'd been competing under 70 or under 80. Uh, so I wasn't having that much success <laughs> yeah. in sparring. So this is the first Big time. Gap. First time sparring in a weight class and I was in 63s. I says, okay, that's fine. Uh, so we went over and uh, uh, the my first match didn't go so well. So I thought I was doing okay. I was holding my own. I was throwing a few side kicks. I was keeping my opponent back. I went for a downward kick, reverse turning kick, hitting me in the jaw. I fell over, rolled over, stood up, got back into the fight. He was surprised to see me. And uh, about... 10 or 15 seconds later, I realized I probably shouldn't have got up so fast. Um, I was, you know, the world was starting to swim a little bit, but it was okay. We kept, we kept going to the end of the match. And then I, that was uh, also how I met Ivan Clement, who had been ITF Junior World Champion a year or so before that. Um, and great fighter. Like, uh, yeah. But it was, it was a hell of an introduction to ITF yeah. international <laughs> competition. But strangely, it was also a thing that said, right, I'm going to keep doing this till I get good at this. Um, and so I would have traveled to compete from 2002 onwards, probably four or five times a year. I went to the Italian Open every year. I went to 
German Open. I went to Holland every year, went to Scotland every year, went to England every year. And, you know, we'd pick occasional other ones as well. But just kept going to international tournaments and bringing people from the club with me um, to improve. And, yeah. you know, we went we, we went to seminars. We went to seminars with Kjell Rumboot, with uh, Master Hutton, with uh, Grandmaster Boss, with uh, Master Yedut and so many other people just to get ideas. And it took easily 10 years to shape a coaching philosophy around sparring from all of the different coaching philosophies we were experiencing from those people. Yeah. You know, but the the competitive experience for me was one where uh, in my area, I didn't have a team of people. I was bringing through my own competitors, but I didn't have people in my own club that I could really spar and learn from. And, you know, I, I, I'd occasionally work with uh, Brian Coughlin, Jamie Rigney and Stephen Ryan in UL. We'd meet up uh, then later with Shane O'Rourke and there was people that we could meet up with and spar every now and again. But compared to most people's sparring training, it might have been once every three or four weeks rather than once or twice a week. Yeah, that's not ideal when you're going to these major competitions. No, it, and of, it wasn't that compared people. to what the guys from Dublin could get, you know. Um, there was a much better training group there. So that motivated me to buy my first car. So I bought a car, uh, a horrible beige Toyota Corolla and drove to River Valley every Sunday for about a year, year and a half and had seven shades kicked out of me by uh, Darren Smith and uh, Ross Smith at the time would have, would have been a little bit uh, younger than me, but he was growing into himself quickly and that was causing trouble. <laughs> yeah. um, Connor Nolan and uh, John Dempsey and so many of these guys. And then the young Luke Woods and, uh, you know, some of these guys that have gone on to do incredible things. But at the time, we're just the next young lad coming through the academy up there and uh it was a good learning curve. And that's where I kind of felt like, okay, I could go abroad to competitions and not always win, but I could always, you know, it could always feel like, well, I can hold my own yeah, and I can get into the ring and, yeah. and fight. But in the meantime, I could practice pattern. And so yeah. you can always practice pattern on your own. I had access to sports halls every day. So I just did that. And that went okay and was doing really well in Ireland. And myself and Stephen Ryan noticed like we're winning everything in Ireland. This is great. We'd go abroad and not much would happen. We'd go out in the early rounds. And it was only really when we started working with Master Yedut in about 2005 that we really started to see huge yeah. improvements there. And I hugely credit him with recognising what we needed to work on and making it very, very clear for us. And we did that and we worked on it very, very diligently and decided that, you know, another good way to get a bit more work done on this would be put together a team pattern and enter the European Cup in Crawley uh, in 2005. So that threw us into that and we rambled together a team. They weren't necessarily all patterns people, but we, we pulled the team together. We were massively out of our depth, but we just trained two and three times a week, every week for months leading up to it. And it was rough and it was awful. And I cringe when I look back at the video, but we managed yeah. to get into a final with one of Masiedu's teams uh, from Poland. Uh, and we were well and soundly beaten, but that was a really encouraging start for us. And as we improved the team over the years, the same core of people went on to... Uh, win the World Cup in uh, uh, in Benidorm in 2006, uh, European Cup in 2007. And then with the addition of Hong Louis, we won the European Championships in 2009 and bronze in the World Championships in 2009. And so for me, those along with a bronze medal in the individual patterns in the World Cup in 2006 and the same in 2007 in the European Cup were probably my competitive highlights. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I only had one Euros and one Worlds. That was it. 
you know. Yeah. So outside of that, you know, that was it. But to have an experience of getting the medal back, bringing home a medal. Yeah. You didn't have many, but you had some successes in there when you were there. So it was it. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I do think it was important uh, with coaching. You don't necessarily have to have experienced, you know, doing, going to the end of the journey and winning the top prize. You know, being on the journey and experiencing success and failure and dealing with both of those things, yeah. you know, is kind of what you need as a coach. And when when we did get to that, you know, that world championships in Argentina in uh, 2009 and, you know, we had that success and, you know, the bronze medal and everything with that one. You know, a lot of there are, I'm sure, some very, very successful competitors who'd look at that and as well, if it's not gold, you lost. It's fine. That's fine. That, But that was a measure of success for us. But equally at the same tournament, I had a junior competitor take two, two individual silvers, two individual bronze and a team bronze. So for me as a coach, that was a hugely rewarding yeah. trip as well. But also like, potentially, not necessarily the colour of the medal, but it's the time you spend training with that group of people as well. It's the memories of how you ended up getting to the gold medal, how you ended up getting to the bronze. Massively. A lot more than necessarily the colour of the medal. And we've discussed this quite a lot. If you can't learn to enjoy the process, you won't last in the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the the process has to be what it's about, not the end results. Because the like the the challenge that we run into the whole time is that the end result is unpredictable. You can do all of the work for it, but it just there are so many variables. It might not work on any yeah. particular day occasion. But if you enjoy the process, if you enjoy that feeling of I'm steadily getting better, I'm improving at my craft. I'm learning what I'm doing and I'm getting better at it. And you can enjoy what that is, the people that you meet along the way, the, the the experience you have and the learning that you have along the way, then it's always worthwhile. So if you're looking at your training as how does this make me better as a person rather than how does this help me win a world championships? I think that's a far more sustainable long-term approach. Yeah. But also I think some people listening to that then might think like oh they don't care about winning but it's mm-hmm. like that's not the case at all it's like no no you're there for the, <laughs> you're there as much for that gold medal as anything else oh, yeah. however if you don't get it like yeah you're going to you're going to lick your wounds it's going to hurt for a little bit but like you look back at it and go you know it was a an enjoyable experience the months leading up to it even maybe the years leading up to it and you dust yourself off and think maybe I'll just go again we'll just go again yeah I'm not broken as a person I'm not broken as a human being and I have the capacity to do this again is a huge thing it's resilience yeah and uh, the, the big thing I'd say is that the the world champions that we have in the club didn't win the world championships after four years of training oh. so the resilience <laughs> that you have to have to get there through the first 14 years of training you know in order to get to that world championship final or the first 10 years of training or whatever it happens to be uh, you have to lose a lot to get there um, or at least lose a little uh, mm. and and one of the toughest things for some of the competitors to deal with and this is more speaking with Irish coach hat on is well when you win a world title where does the motivation come from to get back in and try and do it again and a lot of people struggle with that and they're afraid to lose because yeah. uh, we often have to have the conversation where it's like you get to be world champion until you step down off that podium and the second you step down off that podium with your medal, you're not the world champion anymore. You're the former world champion. And no one can take away that you were there. You know, that medal is yours forever. You did it. But it's also instantly in that moment forgotten because there's somebody who was beaten who is thinking ahead to the next world championships and what they have to do to get into your yeah. position. You know, you get to hold that medal forever. But there will be another world champion in two years if it's not you. Yeah, that's a, like, and I think that's a big thing between like our sport like even from amateur boxing and then when you look into the professionals, like when you fight in professionals, it's like 
you're taking that it's everything is on the line it's like your record whatever title the money all that sort of stuff yeah. so you're trying to take the other person's record all that from the, our side it's like you don't have that it's like you you were that like you said world champion if you lose you were still the world champion like you're you're not on the line there like your medal isn't on the line so no. if you lose like you lost you're still world champion it's like that person didn't suddenly become world champion they maybe won Cork Open the Dublin Open of course something uh, they, they maybe won the Dutch Open it was it wasn't the world championships it's like I still won that competition you didn't take that off me you know whereas like that if you have a belt you beat somebody you had it they're coming to beat you okay now, now they have it and it goes on that way but that's not the way it is for us no and one a, of the phrases of that really wants. riles me every time I hear it is I beat the world champion and you know uh, and I can give a couple of examples of that but the I beat the world champion well the world champion is crowned in a moment on the ring where as if the hand is raised you are the world champion nobody beat you that day yeah and that is the moment in which you're the world champion and after that you're the former world champion and you know I know it does that people wonder to their conference to tell themselves I beat the world champion but no the only place you could potentially beat a world champion is you know on the day of the world championships and because somebody won it if you were that person you are the world champion you didn't beat the world champion you are the world champion yeah and if it was someone else then well they're the world champion and they weren't beaten that's kind of how it is that's how it has to be and so it would be like for me and i'll uh i'll take an example out of this you know i have never been a world champion in patterns but yeah. on various occasions i have beaten people who have been world champions and the most obvious one for me is graham patterson uh, you know, after he'd won the world championships and, you know, and this is three years after he'd won the world championships and yeah. had, you know, lowered his competitive level. He'd moved to the UK. He'd done a lot of other things, you know, superb guy, superb competitor. He just wasn't competing on the world championships level at a world cup in Spain and no reason to expect that he should. Uh, so I didn't beat the world champion. I beat yeah. Graham Patterson on a on not his best day. Yeah, but the fact that he you know. he had been world champion shows he was at a really good level. Like yes. she beat a guy who has a really high level, which yeah. is proven because he was a world champion. But yeah. like you didn't walk away that day with a world gold medal no. yourself. It was just but don't. as you said, if you can keep if you can put that in your back pocket and let it build your own confidence without trying to diminish the achievement of the other person. Yeah, fair play to you. That's what it amounts to. And so after winning that goal in two thousand nine with the team patterns, actually after the bronze in two thousand nine. At the World Championships, you stepped away from competing and went into coaching full time. Yeah, it's a very interesting transition in life when that happens. So um, I wasn't at an age that most people would necessarily consider retirement age for to go on a competition. I was only 30. Um, but what I was doing at that point in time is I'd started to work full time. Excuse me, with, with the Sport Island coaching. I was coaching... Let me see, uh, about 18 hours a week, I suppose, uh, with the Taekwondo Club uh, and then putting in some individual one on one sessions, trying to train myself. And then I was also trying to train when I was with the team pattern and other uh, when national team training sessions were happening. It could be 12 to 14 hours of additional training in the week. And, um, you know, your six hours of national team training and then an hour and a half a day, yeah. two hours a day, depending. And I knew that wasn't a sustainable lifestyle. Like, you know, no. you couldn't do that. So something had to go. I just started the full-time job. I didn't want to give up or reduce my coaching. I was thoroughly enjoying what was happening with the coaching side of things. And I also had an opportunity to step up and coach. I was in 2009 assistant coach with the national team. And I could step up and take a full, on, uh, full coaching position in the national team because someone had stepped back. 
So uh, that was the decision that I made at the time. And I, I haven't looked back. I haven't regretted it. It's been fantastic. And I mean, we've spoken about this before and I, I've come across one or two other people in conversations where this is the case, but I can specifically remember sometime around my yellow tag or yellow belt grading and, I, and, and thinking forward uh, and, and, and having my fantasy land kind of uh, thoughts of, well, where could this Taekwondo stuff take me? And I remember counting out the, the waiting times between grades and thinking, right, I'm going to be 55 when I get to ninth degree. <laughs> and okay, it's weird for a 10 year old to do that. Uh, but uh, I'd worked out that I could be, you know, 55 when I get to ninth degree. Um, now I've had a, a few longer waiting times and stuff in between. But uh, and I won't be 55 if I ever do get to ninth degree. I also no longer would worry about getting to ninth degree. That's yeah. not on my list of priorities. But um, the you know, at the same time as thinking about all of that, when I reflect, there was never a point in time when I thought to myself or set any goals for myself around being a world champion individually in any, you know, in any competitive discipline in Taekwondo. That was never actually a goal. I wanted to compete. I wanted to, you know, to set new goals for myself and improve as a competitor. But it was, the goal was always about Team Ireland. So yeah. I wanted to know that my country was one of the best countries in the world would say at Taekwondo at the time. And I wanted that before I ever knew there was international competition. Like when I was a yellow belt, I mean, you know, there's a tournament in Cork next week, but you don't know anything about the international competitive scene, what organization yeah. you belong to, you know, the you don't see a, You don't see a path to where you can get no. to there. I was kind of the same, like I, like that as a younger grey, kind of dreamed of maybe being a world champion, but you couldn't see how you, how do you even go about it? Like if you said like, or what you have to do to even get to a world championship. So I would have just been like, well, I suppose you have to be a black belt. Yeah. That would have been the clearest thing. But as you kind of come through the grades and you go through, a path kind of opens up to where you go, all right. And then it can become a goal. Yes. The way you can try and achieve it. But when you're that age, like, you don't. You get to a particular just, point. Someone puts an option in front of you of like, well, if you want to do a little more, you need to do this. Yeah. And, and you keep taking those decisions. So for me, that was almost what happened on a coaching level. So I want to do a little more. And the first taste of it was when in 2004, um, we were able to put a junior team into the ITF World Championships in Riccione in Italy. And so what happened there was uh, most of the team, ha more than half, was from uh, River Valley, uh, just the part that we were dealing with. Nothing's changed. Yeah, <laughs> strong team, <laughs> strong team. So uh, we, had, uh, uh, we had a few other people as well from, uh, from Wicklow, from different places as well. And... Uh, uh, we had a very, very short notice when we got our, our nod, our approval, our window to do it. So we had four weeks to prepare a team. Uh, so everyone had to kind of give their, yes, we're going to go very, very quickly. We did one session in River Valley where we picked what the teams would be for junior male, junior yeah. female. And we picked our team pattern teams. And then we organized a week of a camp just before leaving uh, in Shannon, in my gym. I remember that camp. You remember that camp? I remember right? that camp. Well, I was only... Green belt at the time, probably nine or ten, but people sleeping in the hall. Kind of, I yeah. remember coming into training and like I don't know, maybe it was a Saturday morning. And That's it's it. People sleeping you know, in there. We had so. about twenty people, <laughs> and we put all the girls into uh, sponsor families around the around the town, and then we put all of the guys sleeping on uh, mat, inflatable mattresses and sleeping bags in the in the gym. Um, and feeding them was a great challenge for the week. But uh, I learned a lot about coaching that week. But myself and Stephen Ryan. Uh, spent the week with those people, trained two to three times a day across the various disciplines to get 
as ready as we could be in a very, very yeah. short space of time. And from that, we got uh, our junior males took a silver in team pattern. Uh, we had one of the girls, Lauren, uh, took a silver in individual power. And one of the boys, um, uh, Shane Maxwell, took uh, a bronze in individual sparring, uh, lightweight sparring. So uh, that was kind of, that, that was huge and very, very interesting for me. And it was like, they weren't, they also weren't the predicted results. They weren't the people that we thought would do, yeah. you know, well, we didn't think the boys would be the ones who do it. We thought the girls would do it. We didn't, Lauren with power, okay, we could have thought about that or predicted that. And even Shane Maxwell, the, um, uh, there were so many good fighters on that or what we thought, you know, from an Irish perspective were great fighters at the time. They weren't the ones who made it through. Um, but we had the experience of sitting in the coach's chair at the World Championships and standing there when they, you know, when the medals were won and none of them were my athletes, but yeah. it didn't matter because Team Ireland were achieving. Yeah. But like you'd still put in the effort like us that week. Oh, yeah. You were yeah. still involved in that and potentially getting them ready to step on the floor. Sure. But, uh, yeah, what's it like? How do you find the difference in the sense of achievement then from winning as a competitor to winning as, as a coach? Do you feel there's any difference there? Okay, or? The, the simplest way I could put this is I have never been in floods of tears as a competitor. Okay. As a coach, yeah. it's meant more to me to see the people that I've been working with for years succeed yeah. than it has for me to see myself succeed. Because I think there's something predictable as well in your own success. Like when you know, you know, when you have worked at something yourself for a particularly long period of time and you were in control of the process, the go, you know, everything along the way, there's a vindication to it. There's a yeah. sense of like natural justice to it. I earned this, it's mine. And when, when you're a coach, you just don't have any of that sense of control. It's not yeah. yours. Yeah. It'll never be yours. You don't get to stand on the podium. You just get to share in the, the trials, tribulations, the heartache, the doubt, the, uh, you know, the things going well, the things that don't go well. And when it does work out and you can just sit back and be happy for someone, it's a very, it's a different vibe. Yeah. And I've always enjoyed that. Yeah. Like I've heard you say this before, like for, I think a coach means putting others first. Yeah. It's like you, you're going to put in as much hours as the competitor there for the training. You're going to be with them on the ring, next to the ring. You're not going to step in, but then they succeed you don't get to step on the podium either no so it's like you have to just be willing to put ego aside and it's not about you it's about the competitor and helping them which you do and you also have to I be think, quite resilient because an awful lot of the time you we, we know an awful lot about parents living vicariously with their children you know and yeah, they, they want to see yeah. their children succeed and they feel better about yeah. it and that can be true in coaching as well, well but, de definitely true yeah 100% but, but the thing that you struggle with in that or that you have to recognise both as a parent and as a coach if you live vicariously through your students or your children is that their choices are not your choices. They will make the choices that they feel are best for them regardless. And that sometimes that will leave you with your hopes high and dry and, you know, and, and hanging in the wind. And you have to be, you have to have that certain amount of detachment as a coach to where you recognize these are your goals. This is what you want for you. And I'll help you get there. But if you suddenly change your goals and it's not what you want for you anymore, I have to accept and respect that. And then I have to just treat you as the human being that I've, you know, grown to know over yeah. 10 or 15 years and support you in whatever your new decisions, your new life choices, your new goals and ambitions are. And that is tough for some people to take on. Yeah, yeah. So, not, it's tough for everyone to take on. You just, is, you yeah. know, but like with experience, like it, it's happened more than more times than I want to think about. 
you learn how to do that. And eventually over time, and time is the greatest teacher in this, you learn how to mellow out a little bit and actually enjoy people's uh, success in life, regardless of whether it was, uh, you know, your goal of them being the next great thing in Taekwondo or, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be for them and what they've achieved in their lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, because you potentially had a part in that in some, maybe some way. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like all that other stuff, like of social development inside that people that put their kids into for Taekwondo. Yes. Often comes like, that does play a part potentially in other areas of life then. Um, so, but I want to move on then from that to, like I mentioned at the very start in the introduction, you were a part of the team that put together a bid, a very good bid uh, for the World Championships and ended up winning the bid and then organising sure. World Championships here in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I suppose for anybody who doesn't know, like the World Championships is a, at a, one World Championships, a couple of countries will put forward a bid. Yes where other countries and representatives from other countries will vote on where they would like to host the World Championships. So it is competitive selection. It's not just you put your name in the hat and people decide there. You have to put forward your case for why you should host it. So could you tell us a bit about Yeah, absolutely. So it was 2015 that. when we actually won the bid for the World Championships in 2017. Um, we were bidding against uh, Slovenia and Tomas Barada. Um, and he had a very, very strong bid for holding the World Championships in Maribor. And so for us, it was about simply convincing people that we could do a job in Dublin that he couldn't match in Maribor. And like I've known Thomas for many years, trained with him many times. He's a superb athlete, he's a superb competitor, uh, an ambassador for the sport and a bit of a legend in Taekwondo, to be fair. 100%, so, yeah. Yeah, daunting yeah, to, uh, to go up against the Slovenian bid. And you do have to put the money on the line. You have to put, you know, uh, you have to put a deposit down with your bid and, you know, away you go. But we focused on what Dublin and Ireland and us as an organizing committee had to offer. And we built our bid on the idea that at least for the majority, it would be a one campus championships where for the majority of people, you would be staying in a hotel adjacent to the arena. Uh, and that even if you weren't, it was a five minute drive. It, you know, it was yeah. going to be very, very, very close. Everyone would be, you know, living very, very close together. You, you'd get to have that huge community feeling, uh, you know, even down to the dinners where you have, you know, uh, a thousand athletes, coaches, supporters yeah. sitting down to dinner together. You know, it was a surreal experience. It was very, like even said, as me and Adam said on the, the last episode, it was, it was an Olympic village kind of feel. Well, we don't know what that actually feels like, no. but it's the closest I would imagine that we're going to get to it, that, yeah. that competition where like that, you're just walking past, everybody's just around everybody all the time. You can head over to the arena, you can head back to your room. Yeah. All that, like I said, you're eating with the other countries, the guys you're going to be competing against the next day, you're sitting next to them eating dinner. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it was a cool feel. And obviously for us, it was the biggest thing that, uh, well, Roy Baker was on board with us, who's uh, the president of Kickboxing Ireland and WACO in Ireland and vice president of uh, WACO worldwide. But um, he has certainly organized uh, events on that scale before, WACO World Championships, etc. Yeah. The volume of people uh, you know, particularly the Wacko Juniors has been huge. So he's uh, and, and the, the biggest Irish Open, Open, Irish Open four th four thousand competitors, four thousand competitors <laughs> in a year. Yeah, he's used to that volume yeah. of people and the legislate or the the uh, the logistics behind that. Uh, and that was a little newer for us. But what is different for uh, is the production quality uh, side of things. And I think he he wouldn't mind us saying that that some of the production qualities of an ITF World Championships would have been different to what he would have experienced before. 
And we had from being at world championships, European championships as coaches and as competitors before, some things that we wanted to improve as an experience for the coaches and athletes in particular, but then also for the umpires and everything else yeah. as well. So we kind of set our stall on improving some of those things for people that aren't necessarily or weren't previously always considered as the priority for the event. And to that end, we include the spectators at home who couldn't make it. And so we really put a lot of thought into how we would live stream the whole event, uh, uh, the the program so that people would have a souvenir to take back as a good record of the fact that they were there. That was a great idea. It's just different because it hadn't been done before. It hadn't happened, but it was a great idea. But even, yeah. it turned out well as it well. It wasn't, it wasn't a cheap job. Like it turned out really nice. Like all the Irish team had their, their a little bit of a profile. Mm. So it, it turned out really well and interested to see if, that will happen now going forward to this World Championships. Yeah, and yeah, it, there, there's there's so many possibilities when it comes to one of these things uh, to see what you can do. The opening ceremony has been one where, you know, it can be seen as a bit of a chore, something you have to sit through or, or, or live through. And we, by having people very, very close locally to it, they only had to walk for five or ten minutes and go back. Uh, and I'll extend an apology to the few people who had to wait for a bus at the end of it. That was <laughs> unexpected. Yeah. But for the majority, you were able to just walk back to your room. Um uh, and so you could come out for an hour, have, you know, a, a very upbeat, enthusiastic, like uh, engaging production that like we hired very, very good people to put on that show. And the staging, the lighting, the dance troupe, the drummers, yeah. everything was really, really, really good. Uh, and that was another occasion where the uh, the hairs rose in the back of the neck, you know. Yeah, but I thought as well it was... It was great the fact that the opening ceremony was actually opening the tournament like it was the night before. It wasn't that like three days into the tournament on an evening you kind of then had to be like oh geez, this opening ceremony can we just go back to the hotel and get dinner. It was yeah. like you'd had probably had food but most people probably were making weight so maybe not but you yeah. were able to go over like I said it was only what just over the hour maybe. We were very lucky and we then, could do it after the weigh-in after dinner. Oh yeah. So oh, yeah, the weigh-in was Sorry. done. Yeah, everyone had had their dinner. Yeah. You could yeah. come along for the hour, and then you could go back, and you were still had hours before you really needed to be asleep for the next yeah. day. Yeah. So the timing was kind of critical there, and we got a lot of key dignitaries from the country in, in terms of the 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 mayor of South County Dublin. The uh, we had representatives from Falcha and from uh, from Sport Ireland and all that there. So, you know, we we kind of take the boxes we needed to take with that one. But uh, a lot of the things that we were looking to do were just simple things. We wanted lots of warm-up space for the competitors. Uh, we wanted people to be able to train uh, on the days leading up to the tournament and have lots of space and not worry about that. Yeah. We wanted, you know, and I, I, I'll mention Brendan Dugan and Wesley Faliki here. Uh, they were on to us asking about, you know, the, the dimensions of the, uh, and what board holders would use and everything. They were preparing as best they could for power. And we said, well, look, it's like this, guys. This is specifically the board. We will have power holders and special tech holders there for you to practice on. So knock yourselves out, lads. And day one, they arrived and, you know, can we have these? And, you know, for them, that was, yeah. you know, you didn't have to figure out how they were going to get boards held for practice and for training. So little things like that, having mats available in the, and, and big open warm spaces for people to train in. Such simple things, but they just weren't always guaranteed. And so for us, those were big things to to have and to be able yeah. to guarantee. People. But that's always just like just small little issues that happen from tournament to tournament that you, yeah. you try to fix. Like how could we make that just a little bit better? To which yeah, that's yeah. definitely we had to that issue. Absolutely, we will we will never ever ever tell the community at large what it felt like that you know to have the you know there were so many things that we had in our mind and planned 
that we panicked over and stressed over that didn't go to plan. And mostly nobody knew because they didn't know that that was our plan. Yeah. And, you know, it was okay. We just had that one major heart attack where we thought the power had dropped in the building on day one. <laughs> and all of a sudden all the rings went dead and everything. And it turned out to be as simple as a loose international adapter. <laughs> It so simple. So simple. But when you have the, the like hundreds and hundreds of meters of cabling going around, connecting all of the different TVs and screens and everything, you know. Trying to track that. Uh, and it happened within an hour on day one. And, you know, it, it that was a panic. But once that was, once we got past that, the, it, it actually, we relaxed into the whole event and it ran pretty smoothly for us. And as well, you had some there was success and obviously uh, your own competitors like myself, yeah. Louise own had so, had good successes at the tournament. Absolutely, but also Team Ireland finished number one overall, which so yeah, that, which wow. which I think for me at uh, a point of view like to that one being number one in the world and then hosting the world championships for me that kind of t- took Ireland to kind of I don't know a different level on yeah. uh, on the world scale of Irish Taekwondo because like we've done everything now. It's like you know we've held a bit of major championships. We've been number one in the world. Yeah. We've won all the team sparring divisions. We've had world champions in pattern sparring. Uh, so like that kind of elevated us, I think, a little bit. So I'd like to think, think so. I'd like to think so. And the the beauty of it for me is that none of those achievements were singular achievements. They were not individual achievements. So when you look at it in that, getting to the top of the, or to, getting to host the championships was on the back of the Irish Taekwondo Association as an organisation over 10 or 15 years, elevating itself in terms of the trust that the ITF could put in us. To the point where other countries looked at us and say, said, yeah, those guys know what they're about. They could do a good event. Uh, from the point of view of the national team achieving what it did, again, on the back of 10 years, particularly through 2009 to, uh, you know, 2007, 2009 onwards, to where the team had built, the coaching structure had evolved. We'd, you know, and although we say I, I had the head coach role, I was not more responsible than any other coach there for the success that was achieved. I mean, you could say, well, Stephen Cooley and Paul King had more competitors there than most, but there was, but that was still only a third of the squad or a quarter of the squad. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at where the gold medals came from. You look at you know the team efforts and you know the build up of the teams and everything that went into that. That was an organization performing and working together as a unified team. Yeah. That achieved so much, and then you know when you look in terms of the, uh you know, the, the the individual successes and, you know, across sparring in particular, that championships, but, you know, different styles of spars, different sparring philosophies, different coaches, different, yeah. you know, different weight classes, male, female, everything. It was, for me, enormously satisfying. And that was, I suppose, for me, that was the moment where I felt like, you know, anything that I had an ambition around achieving as a kid had kind of pretty much come true. Yeah. Well, I think even as well as in winning the bid, I think when you look back, Potentially, I might be wrong here, but I think the small little things of like hosting an IOC, hosting the IUC, giving the right people the right kind of vibe around Ireland yeah. to say that, yeah, look, we, we can do this. We can host this tournament. This is what we're going to do. This is what it'll feel like. The way they go, yeah, you know, that sounds good that Just, we put your trust in I it. I would think the simple things of making sure that anytime anyone came to Ireland, they felt welcome and they felt, you know, the hospitality was there. Yeah. And people wanted them to enjoy themselves and that was huge. Yeah. Um, so just uh, we spoke a bit about the coach education stuff and where you think it is in terms of like Ireland and the ITA and where Taekwondo can go compared to other sports yeah but uh, just one last bit where do you think maybe 
ITF as a whole in Taekwondo, maybe the coach education could go. Do you see a development there? Like they have the kids program. I'm seeing they're doing some stuff with like the Harmony project and yeah. some other bits and pieces. Do you think, where do you think So some things like that could go or do you think it, you, it could go in a, a different direction? So there's some massive stuff that, or massive potential there. And so the first thing that we've got is uh, the ITF have given us again a little bit more trust in myself, Stephen Ryan and Grandmaster Boss would be hosting the first international ITF coaches conference in June, the last weekend of June this year. And it's in Ireland, it's in Limerick. Uh, and that's an attempt to create a community of coaches that create that collaboration across the international scene that we've created in Ireland and that we see in other countries like Poland and Norway and uh, the Netherlands to a degree and, and Scandinavian countries. And we'd love to see that broader collaboration across the whole ITF. Personally, I'd love to see the ITF having a recognized, uh, let's say, way of recognizing and training coaches at the higher levels. So, mm. you know, and to and also to help and support countries who don't have a recognized and nationally assured or quality assured coach education program, helping them to establish that or piggyback off the work of other countries in the ITF yeah. to raise the level for all of us. Um, so would love to see that happening over the next few years. And there's the potential there to do that. And I've certainly made presentations, you know, at the ITF convention and so on to let that happen. And the second thing is that, you know, there it's a, it's a wide open space. And so right now I'm working with Richie Ford on the TKD Coach Academy. And over the next, you know, weeks and months, we're going to be releasing an awful lot of content, you know, that'll be available to everybody. Um, really just adding our extra little bit of flavor into the, uh, the, the depth of what's available for, by way of coaching ideas, inspiration, generating discussion, generating, uh, you know, uh, cross fertilization of ideas across the whole area. And we really hope that along with that website, you know, that those kind of offerings and services that are there in the ITF, that it will bring coaches together to talk about coaching and how yeah, to improve. build that community and yeah, exactly. exchange ideas and that. So yeah, that definitely sounds good. And I look forward to seeing what's, what comes out of it. Very soon. But uh, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. It's been uh, it's been good. Um, is there anything you like to plug, social media wise, well, or event wise? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, in terms of the ITF uh, International Coaches Conference, you can go to the ITF website, uh, takeondoitf.org, and get all the details there. And to kind of follow what's happening with the TKD Coach Academy, it's TKD uh, Coach underscore Academy, and you'll find that on Twitter and Instagram and all the Facebook. Usuals. Uh, yeah, uh, from my point of view also, we'd say uh, follow Shannon Taekwondo Club, Instagram, Facebook. And uh, in terms of the Black Belter podcast, you, it's the Black Belter on Instagram, Black Belter on Facebook and on YouTube as well. And like I said at the start, if you enjoyed listening, please like, share, subscribe, review, all that good stuff to help promote the podcast. Thank you.